And we'll turn to our scripture reading for today, which is in 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1, you can find that on page 569 in the Pew Bible in front of you, page 569. We come now very near to the end of our encounters with Elijah the prophet. But Elijah is given the duty or perhaps the honor of rebuking just one more king before he leaves the scene. And we'll read the entirety of 2 Kings 1, but not until we've prayed for God's help. Let's pray. God, we do ask for your help. We do not want to be those who come to your word half-heartedly. We want to be those who come in the fear of the Lord. It was grace that taught our hearts to fear. And it is grace that leads us home. So we pray that You would give us grace as we read your word this holy morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 1. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go! And consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going off to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, You will not leave the bed you are lying on, you will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? A man came to us, they replied. And he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending men to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked them, What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, He was a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. The king said, That was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, Come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his fifty men. At this the king sent to Elijah another captain with his fifty men. The captain said to him, Man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. So the king sent a third captain with his fifty men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these fifty men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, 
This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Baal's above, the God of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for, other, as for all the other events of Ahaziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? There's a, a well-known verse, I think probably the most well-known verse from the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9 continues to ring true in the ears of the people of God. It says this, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. When we look back at the ancient world, we see one which bears considerable resemblance to our own. Of course, they didn't have automobiles or the internet or satellites, but the spirit of their age was very much the same or very close to the same as the spirit of our age. And it makes a lot of sense that the spirit of their age and the spirit of our age would bear resemblance because though we progress in some ways, the human condition does not progress. We are still sinners who are caught up and even apart from God's grace, desiring our sin, enjoying our sin. And the Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 2, long after the time of 2 Kings. He says that we all once followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. We live in a tolerant age, and the ancients lived in a tolerant age as well. It didn't matter. It didn't matter in the ancient world whether you worshipped this god or that god. You could dabble in a little bit of god here and there. However you desired to worship, that was fine. You could give a little bit of obedience and a little bit of devotion here, a little bit of homage here. And as long as you, as long as you satisfy, satisfied just enough of the gods, that was going to be just fine. Nobody really particularly cared what percentage of your devotion you gave where, as long as you gave some devotion here and there. The only kind of god that would be repulsive to the ancient was the God of Israel. And why would the God of Israel be so abrasive to the ancient mind, to the ancient heart? Because the God of Israel required your entire obedience. He was an intolerant God. The God of Israel declared that He was the one true God and that all other gods were idols. And such a claim of an intolerant God was offensive the ancients, and it was offensive because it was intolerant. And the same thing is true in our age, isn't it? We like to dabble in this and that. Nobody particularly cares what you dabble in. We're a, a tolerant people, and tolerance, don't get me wrong, tolerance comes with, with many benefits, <clears throat> but the greatest drawback of this kind of ultra-tolerance is that there is no tolerance for a God who is intolerant. That is, that a God who makes demands on me even perhaps demands that I do not want him to make on me cannot be tolerated. And particularly, if I don't belong to this God, I want nothing to do with this God, a God who would even make demands on the person who doesn't want anything to do with this God cannot be tolerated because he is obnoxious to the modern 
mind. So the only kind of God I suspect that is intolerable to the tolerant is the intolerant God. And so it was. So it was in the days of Ahab and Jezebel and Ahab's son Ahaziah. And as we reach back into 1 Kings, to the passage we finished with last week, we'll remember that, as Ralph Davis says, Ahaziah is just a chip off the old dead block. He does everything the same as his father had done. His father has died, but Ahaziah goes and worships the same gods, worships those same gods in the same ways. All his policies are the same as Ahab's had been. Ahab was the worst, the most wicked of the kings of Israel to date, and Ahaziah follows exactly in his footsteps. And we see then, we begin the book of 2 Kings in verses 1 and 2. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. The first verse there, verse 1, is the only political note we have in the whole record of Ahaziah. It's the only note about his reign outside of his treatment of of the gods and his treatment of Elijah, and it's not particularly a flattering one. Here we have Moab, which had been a, a subject nation of the nation of Israel. Now they rebel against him, and we see again a, a contrast. Just briefly, remember that Jehoshaphat, who was the good king who worshipped the Lord, he was able to keep Edom, their historical enemy, under his thumb and exploit that for his purposes, whereas now Ahaziah does not have that opportunity and suffers for it. And as just a, a brief aside, this rebellion of Moab is attested in recent archaeological finds. There was discovered something called the, the Misha Stella. It's a, a Moabite, a big Moabite round rock. And in it are in it is, is scribed, is written and engraved all the records of the Moabite peoples, and what they say is that the Moabites in the time of Ahab's son rebelled and were successful. So exactly what the scripture says is attested by archaeology. Archaeology continues to confirm the accounts of the scriptures. But then in the second verse, we see the, we see the faithfulness of God to his promises. And God had promised to Ahab that because of his sin, by stealing Naboth's vineyard after he had Naboth murdered, because of that, his dynasty would end. That his sons would not sit long on the throne of Israel. And so not long into Ahaziah's reign, he falls off his roof and becomes seriously injured. And he's injured so seriously that he fears for his death. And he does what most people do when they're fearing for their death. They, they get desperate and they turn to the supernatural. The problem, the problem with Ahaziah is that he turns to the wrong God. He sends messengers not to Elijah the prophet or not to Micaiah the prophet. He sends messengers to Baal-zebub, which is an intentional misspelling of the name. Baal-zebub means not God of the rain, but it means God of the flies. The author means to mock Baal, the God, and what he says. He says, Baal-zebub, a false god. 
But not only that, but he sends the messengers outside of Israel. He sends them off to Ekron, which is a Philistine city, not even an Israelite city. In every way, he rejects the Lord and what he does. And as we can expect, this doesn't go over very well with the Lord. Look with me at verses 3 to 6. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria. And ask them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him. This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending men to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. You see, the Lord is obviously not pleased. He says it not only to Elijah, but now it's repeated again, and it's repeated again at the end. Is there no God in Israel? Ahaziah, have you not heard? Have you not observed my greatness? Haven't you heard what I did to your father? Haven't I heard? Haven't you heard what I have done in withholding the rain? Haven't you heard what I did to the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Haven't you heard of my greatness, Ahaziah? That you would turn to an idolatrous God. That you would turn to a God who is no God at all. That you would turn away from me when I have demonstrated an ability to do anything and everything I desire. You still will not turn to me. And Ahaziah had broken God's law in more than one way in this. But he broke the law of God in Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 says, Do not turn to mediums or seek out spiritists. For you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. This is precisely what Ahaziah is doing. But notice the very last line in that, that passage from Leviticus. I am the Lord your God. Baal is not the Lord your God. There is no other God. I and I alone. I am the Lord your God. Only me. This should ring for us the words of the first two commandments. Remember that the first two commandments are not written in a book by a man. The first, the Ten Commandments, including these first two, are inscribed by the finger of God on stone tablets as a, an eternal covenant between God and all of His people. What distinguishes the Ten Commandments from all the rest of the laws in the Old Testament is that God gave them personally with His own hand. And in these two commandments, these first two commandments, we read this. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Ahaziah has stuck his thumb in God's eye. He's provoked the jealousy of the Lord and he's brought the wrath of God upon himself, his his motto seems to be, not I am the Lord your God, not one God, but any God but the true God. That seems to be the motto of our own age in many ways. I was reading just uh, maybe a couple weeks ago, I was reading an article. It was very positive. It was, it was kind of fawning over a couple of 
Islamic members in the, in the Congress, and I don't really particularly have any issue with that article in itself. But then even just a little bit more recently, I was reading a different article that was blasting the vice president's wife. And why? Because she dared to work at a Christian school. Right? Any God but the real God. That's the motto of Ahaziah, and it's the motto of our own postmodern age as well. And the message to Ahaziah is this, you will certainly die. God does not take lightly idolatry. It would seem that God is rather intolerant. So the messengers go back to Ahaziah. And Ahaziah knows that they could not possibly have made it all the way to Ekron and back in such a short amount of time. And so he says, what gives? Why are you back so soon? And they said, well, we met this guy. We met this guy, and he was hairy, and he had this leather belt. You know, the, the original Hebrew text gives the implication that not only Elijah's garments were hairy, but Elijah himself was very hairy. Perhaps those of you who are hairy men will enjoy that fact that this is a prophet. He is a, a hairy man. And then we see as well, if we jump forward to the New Testament, that Elijah is mirrored by John the Baptist. John the Baptist dresses in the same way as Elijah. There's a lot of similarities between them, perhaps the chief of which they both preach messages of repentance to the people of God. So this is the garment of a prophet. I just want you to take a moment and marvel at something that perhaps we might see uh, at the first. And that is that, that Elijah has the authority within himself, carries so much weight in his voice and his appearance that these men are sent on a royal mission. And not to accomplish the royal mission would have at least cost them their livelihoods and most likely would have cost them their lives. But so great is the air of authority around Elijah that these men would abort their mission and head right back to their king, even at the cost of life or livelihood. And they come back, and we see that in doing so, we begin a battle between Ahaziah and Elijah. Look at, at verses 7 to 9. The king asked them, What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, He was a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. The king said, That was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men, the captain went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, man of God, the king says, come down. Man of God, these 50 men plus their commander come, man of God, come down. Uh, Ahaziah has every intention of arresting and most likely imprisoning, maybe even more likely than that, destroying and killing Elijah the prophet. If Elijah is going to be obnoxious, if Elijah is going to be an antagonist to the king, he must be dealt with swiftly and he must be silenced. But before we move forward from there, it's good for us to remember something that Elijah as the, the prince of the prophets at this time, as the, the main mouthpiece for the Lord at this time, Elijah in himself, represents the word of the Lord. 
That's not to say that Elijah is the word of the Lord incarnate. Only the Lord Jesus is the word of the Lord incarnate. But Elijah represents in his person the word of the Lord. So that when Ahaziah desires to silence Elijah, he really wants to silence the word of the Lord. And when Ahaziah goes to battle by sending soldiers after the prophet, he really does not go to battle with Elijah so much as he goes to battle with Elijah's God. And we see very quickly that Ahaziah is no better at silencing God than his father Ahab had been. Look at verses 10 to 12. Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this the king sent to Elijah another captain with his fifty men. The captain said to him, Man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, May fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. And the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his fifty men. Fifty-one men go out. They go out with the mission to silence and most likely bring Elijah to his death. Fifty-one men are incinerated. Then we see it again. Fifty-one men go out. They seek to bring Elijah and probably to his death. And fifty-one men are incinerated. Now what does this remind us of? If you've been tracking through the book of Kings, this should remind us of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. There are all kinds of similarities here. In, in both instances, you have a prophet of the Lord, Elijah, doing battle with idol, idolaters. In both instances, you have fire being called down from heaven, in the first upon the sacrifice, and the second upon the soldiers. And in both instances, you have dead idolaters at the end, and quite a few of them. And in both instances, God is victorious. God is always victorious. And the story has, has been condemned by quite a, more than one modern scholar. It's been called inhumane or a, a slaughter of innocence. And in some respect, we can understand that none of us would particularly enjoy being incinerated by the fire of God. But the, the criticism of the passage comes from a different worldview than the Bible's worldview. To criticize the passage implies that God is not free and that God does not care about his worship. And if you notice, these men are not innocent. They're idolaters and they're soldiers in the army of an idolatrous, God-hating king. They're on a mission. They're at the foot of this hill for the purpose of arresting and silencing the prophet of the Lord, to talk about the, the humaneness of the passage is to miss the point entirely. The point of the passage is that God is a jealous God, that God does not leave the guilty unpunished, and that God will preserve his word. That's the message of the passage. And when allegedly Christian scholars criticize the passage for its inhumaneness, they miss the point entirely. And in fact, they don't reject the passage, they reject God because the author of Hebrews says, our God is a consuming fire. If you don't like the God of Elijah, you don't like the God of the New Testament anymore. You get the sense, don't you? God cares at least a little bit about the first and second commandments. But this is not a God to be trifled with. And the last 
commander, the last army commander, does not want anything to do with the same fire which has destroyed his predecessors. Look with me at verses 13 to 15. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. This captain knows exactly what has happened to the 102 men who went before him. And he sent on the same message. And he goes in the knowledge of what has happened to the men who walked the same path and stood at the base of the same hill. You have to imagine that he goes literally shaking in his boots, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you go shaking your boots if you knew exactly what had happened? And when he arrives at the hill, he probably arrives at the hill and sees the char spots where the fire of God had fallen from heaven. And he knows that that's exactly what happened to people who had come to do the exact same thing as he had done. And so he comes to, he comes to this, and instead of saying, man of God, come down, he begs for his life. That makes sense, doesn't it? And instead of being incinerated, this man has his life. His life is spared. Now why? What makes this man different from the first two? I mean, they had the same orders. They had the same king who sent them. But of course, the answer is obvious. It's obvious what distinguishes this man and his men from the other ones. This man had a due respect for the word of God. This man feared God. This man knew that God was a jealous God, that he would not leave the guilty unpunished, that he hates sin. He realized that this is not a God to be trifled with. And the end of the story is predictable because we already saw in the last passage that Ahaziah dies after just two years. And so Ahaziah dies according to the word of the Lord. There's a, an obvious application, I, I suppose, there are other applications we made, but the obvious application here is the obvious application of the entire book of Kings, and it is God's word is true. God's word is true. We see this in a, a couple of ways. The first way we see it is we see it in the archaeological finds where the word of God is proven true by what we found over time. But inside the text itself, we see that God told God told Ahaziah by the prophet that he would die, and according to the word of the Lord, Ahaziah dies. That is, that the, since the, the God of Elijah is still God today, and as he never changes, we can expect that as the word of God was true in his day, the word of God is true in our day. The God of the consuming fire in Elijah's day is still the God of the consuming fire in our day. And as he was not a God to be messed with or trifled with in Elijah's day, so he is not a God to be trifled with in our own day. And I suspect that some of you are triflers. I've been a pastor long enough to know that a lot of folks are triflers. You can come and sit in the right spot, maybe even in your spot. You can sit in the right spot 
at the right time and the right day. And you can say all the right things. You can stand and you can sit. And you can say all the right things. You can sing, though probably half-heartedly. And you can still be one who trifles with God. Who does not take the word of the Lord seriously. Just like Ahaziah hadn't taken the word of the Lord seriously. So you can sit here for all your life and you can look like you are the right way. You can look in all the right things and do what you think is all the right things here at the right times and yet still be a half-hearted quasi-follower of the Lord. You might be in the holy place on Sunday, maybe only part of the Sunday, but at heart, you're a liar, a cheater, an abuser, an adulterer, a hypocrite. Maybe you go to the so-called gentlemen's clubs. What a terrible name for something so disgusting. You're on drugs. Whatever it is, your life outside of the Lord demonstrates that in your heart, you care nothing for the Lord. I have seen it. I hope it's not so. But I suspect that it probably is. And I want you to hear something from this passage our God is a consuming fire. And God will have his glory. God always wins. And God won in all three of these companies who came to get him. God won in justice in the first two. And God won in mercy in the third. God will have his glory. God has had his glory from every single person, from Adam until today. And God has his glory either from his undying love or from his justice. In both, he has proven to be good. So the question for you is the same question as it was for those commanders. Will you be incinerated in the justice of God or will you be an object of his mercy? You see, this is, what the, this is what the third captain did. The third captain comes, and he knows, he knows that God is just. He knows that God is powerful to do whatever he wants. He knows what has happened to those before him, and he, he begs the Lord for his life, and he knows that the Lord is also merciful. And God shows mercy. God shows mercy when he humbles himself before him. Hebrews 9.27 says this, People are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. When you think about the death which you are destined to die, and I don't like to think about that, but when you think about the death which you are destined to die, what do you think about? When you plumb the depths of your heart, when you look into your soul, what do you think about? Do you see one who trifles with God? Maybe you see one who doesn't care about God at all. Do you see someone who is a disciple of the Lord? Can you say, can you say with Paul in a, in a good conscience, to live is Christ and to die is gain? You see, there are, there are two options. Just like, there's sold, just like with those soldiers, there's two options. But there's no middle ground. There's, there's no soldiers who go back wounded. There, there's two options. Either you face God's wrath or you are saved from it. 
are two options. Which will it be for you? It will be one of the two. You will either be dead or alive. You will either be condemned or saved. You're either with Jesus or you're not. Jesus says the one who is not against us is for us. No middle ground. In any sermon on, on judgment and on mercy would be remiss if it didn't end at Jesus. Because Jesus is the perfect judge and he is the perfect Savior. And he is able to judge with justice and he is able to save with an undying love which can reach even to the deepest, darkest of sinners. And what Jesus says in John 6 mirrors exactly the message of 2 Kings 1. Jesus says this in John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Isn't that what happened to this third captain? He heard the word. He believed. And he passed from death with his other two captains before him. He passed from death to life. Then we go on and we read this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Do you hear the good news in there? Here. Bear faithful fruit and live. That even the worst of the sinners in this place, even the worst of the sinners in this place can come in faith, can hear the Word of God and come in faith to the Lord Jesus who is a perfect Savior and who delights to save and be saved. And stand in the shoes of that third cap. But the counterbalance is this. Do evil. Ignore the word. And die. That's the message of 2 Kings. And it's the message of Jesus. You have to choose one. There are only two options. You have to choose one. Either it will be eternal satisfaction and perfect joy, or it will be emptiness and destruction. It seems like an obvious choice, doesn't it? What's the difficulty? The difficulty is our sin. We love our sin. We love the things our sin brings. So the question is not a matter of, of how much love. The question is, who will you love? And what will you love? Will you love yourself? Will you love your sin? Will you love the fleeting, temporary pleasures that it brings? 
Or will you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Who is the perfect judge and the perfect Savior? You should choose to love Jesus. You should choose to honor the Word of God. You should choose not to dabble in this and that. You should choose. You should choose the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only Savior and our only hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the only Savior and the only hope. Sometimes we need that to be put in stark perspective for us. It's easy to become distracted. It's easy to follow the it's easy to follow our hearts. And the heart is deceptive. It is wicked. It's easy to follow our hearts, and yet we pray that you would renew our hearts. You would cause us to be born again. To live not according to the desires of the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We pray. And we might, on the day when we stand before the consuming fire, we might not be incinerated as the first two companies of men. But instead, we pray that your fire might be for us a fire of purifying, that you would... You would purify and remove out all that all that is unclean in us but that you would receive us God we know that we are saved in no other way than by faith so we pray that our ears might not be hardened to your word might not be closed to your word instead that we would hear and believe and be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.